Law, Policy, and Markets. I'm Alan Marks. Today, I'm joined by Rod Miller, a partner in Milbank's Capital Markets Group, and Ileana Angan, a partner in Milbank's corporate and M&A practice. As lawyers, we can really add value and help shield the company, the SPAC, the directors from liability by making sure that conflicts are clearly disclosed, that everyone's kind of rowing in the same direction, and that nothing improper is happening along the way. Let's get to it. SPACs have dominated the IPO market over the past two years. These special-purpose acquisition companies raised over $75 billion last year, or about half the total IPO market, and nearly that amount again just in the first quarter of this year. SPACs now account for three-quarters of the total equity raised by IPOs in the U.S. so far in 2021. Investors in a SPAC receive units in a trust. The trust later buys a private company in effect acting as a back door to take the target company public through the DSPAC transaction, as the merger is called. If the SPAC is not merged into a target within two years, the trust liquidates and returns the money raised in the IPO back to the public investors. Even if new SPAC IPOs slow from this blistering pace, DSPACs will continue to move markets as the billions raised in the IPOs are deployed in new M&A deals, along with the so-called pipe financings that add leverage to the DSPAC transactions. The SEC, at least based on recent statements from staff in the Division of Corporation Finance, may be waving a cautionary yellow flag. Here to discuss are Milbank partners Rod Miller and Ileana Angun. Rod, Ileana, thanks very much for taking the time to get together today. Happy to join you. Thanks, Alan. So SPACs have been on fire for the last couple of years, although thanks to the SEC, the market has at least temporarily taken a a big lull here in in April 2021. What was driving the SPAC phenomenon in the first place? I mean, they've been around since 2009. Why have they suddenly been so hot for the 2020 and 2021? Well, you know, I mean, they really started even earlier than than 2009, but they, they were for a long time viewed as sort of a last resort type instrument to get companies that really had no choice. Uh, and, and the people who sponsored the SPACs were not given much credibility from the market. And I think what we've seen in the last two years is the rise of professional asset managers coming in to sponsor these things. And, and investors have really seen, have, have been attracted by that because I think they might see it as an alternative to private equity that doesn't have sort of this long five-year commitment period, you, you know, you sort of invest, you have an opportunity to get out. A lot of them have have even moved into the pipe market recently because it's even closer to the final investment uh, time. So I think investors really like the flexibility of being able to put money behind people who they know from the professional asset management world. Yeah, of course, not all SPACs are sponsored by professional asset managers. I know back on March, the SEC even put out an investor alert saying to investors, hey, don't invest in a SPAC just because it's backed by a celebrity or because you read something on a, you know, social media or in a chat room or on the internet. Um, I mean, their basic message, Ileana, was? Do not invest in a SPAC just because it's fronted by a celebrity. That is not, that is not a sound investment thesis. You should actually look at what the SPAC is doing and what the potential target is. Right. So if you look at the, the kind of the cast of characters, uh, you mentioned the pipe market. So obviously debt that's coming in or, or additional equity coming in in the form of private investment and public equity is a big part of the liquidity needed at the end of the day to do these mergers. But the starting point when the SPAC first does its IPO, we've got public investors 
we've got the private sponsors who are putting this all together and get a you know a, a promote or a, a carried interest. You know, and the money that's raised will go into a trust, and if it's not spent, gets the interests are redeemed, and the the pr public investors get their money back and the sponsors get nothing. If they find a target, if they buy the new company, now you've got a, another entrant on the stage, and that's the SPAC target, which is a company which, as a result of the merger at the end of the transaction, will now be a public company. Are all their interests aligned, Ileana? Certainly not. The sponsors have a slightly different interest from the public stockholders because they get a 20% promote Basically, they buy into the SPAC entity at a much lower price than the public stockholders. And then on the target side, those stockholders will often view the acquisition by the SPAC as a financing transaction. And so they are more concerned about getting some liquidity, getting money on the balance sheet of the target, but they certainly are not thinking about the transaction from the perspective of a public stockholder. And then the public stockholders themselves, as you mentioned, they have this right to redeem their shares in the SPAC at the value of that's in the trust, which is typically around $10 a share, which is what they bought in at. And so often the investment decision for a public stockholder at the end of the day can be made based on whether or not the trading price of the SPAC is above or below $10 at the time they have to decide whether to redeem their shares or not. Right. And so, Rod, when you first start the SPAC, when you have the IPO and the public investors buy in, they pay their $10, they get two things, right? They'll get a common interest in the SPAC, but they'll also get a warrant. And warrants are a pretty important part of kind of some of the, the current regulatory discussions around SPACs and, and how they should be valued and treated and disclosure rules. The warrant is a right to buy additional equity. How different is that between the public and the private, or being you know, with the public investors and the private sponsors? So it's interesting, both the sponsors, while they put in a very little amount, the rest of the capital that they put in, which is not insignificant, is in the form of warrants. And so there's a private warrant that they get. It has substantially all the same features as the public warrant. And in both cases, they are looking for the combination to ultimately increase in value by at least 15%. And that's when they become in, in, in the money because it goes from, from $10 to $11.50 is the, is the strike price. So that, that increase in value of $1.50 is what's needed to bring it into the money. The accounting treatment for those warrants has long been just additional equity is what you would expect. It's people buying in and getting equity. But as a result of some some fairly complicated accounting rules that were adopted in the last decade, you know they're required to analyze those as financial instruments, and and that's where we are today. Is I think the the staff at the SEC is reacting to some of the accounting of these as equity, and has has questioned whether that's really the right accounting, and that's what slowed things out. Um, I, I would note that I think the market had slowed a little bit before the staff took this position. I mean, we were seeing a lot of backup in the in the pipe market, and Ileana can really go into how important the pipe market is to the ultimate M&A transaction. But we had started seeing that already, and then the SEC sort of has really um, put on the brakes a bit for, for the last two weeks with this accounting issue. Yeah, so let's look at what the SEC's done and then come back to the pipes market. I know on April 12th, they put out their, as a staff statement, it's not, you know, an official rule, but comments on the accounting and reporting considerations for warrants 
And of course, if you treat a warrant as liability on the balance sheet instead of as equity, that's going to require quarterly valuations. Those valuations could be quite volatile. That may be requirements to restate 10Ks and 10Qs. So it, it, it trickles through a lot of the reporting requirements, not just the accounting treatment for the company. And this came on the heels of an April 8th statement from John Coates, the new acting director of the SEC's Division of Corporation Finance, really kind of questioning other issues around disclosures and around SPACs. Ileana, how important are these two statements? Certainly the accounting guidance that we've received is critically important, particularly for SPACs right now that are sort of mid-acquisition. The way the SEC structured the statement sort of put the onus on the accounting firms to basically confirm the accounting treatment through the granting of their consent in connection with the registration statement. And as one would expect, the accounting firms are taking a very careful approach in how they respond to this. And so basically everyone who was about to file a registration statement or file an amendment to their registration statement has now had at least a couple of weeks um, added to their process while they get evaluation done, consider how to go forward, whether they need to restate their financials, et cetera. And while a couple of weeks is not that much in the grand scheme of things, when you have a clock ticking on a transaction and you need to get to a shareholder meeting, it can be really important. On the other point, as you mentioned, the statement that John Coates put out questioning whether the SPAC go public process should be treated more like an IPO process, questioning whether it's really appropriate for companies to put out projections in connection with the SPAC process in a way that they wouldn't do if they were going through an IPO process. I think that can be seen as a hint of what might be to come with the SEC and with the SEC's general attitude towards SPACs. Yeah, so let's let's stay on that. And and Rod, I know you have a background in public policy, not just in you know law. Traditionally, the SEC has kind of two different ways it can come at this kind of a risk or any kind of a risk. One is to compel disclosure, and the other is to create some kind of a duty, fiduciary duty or other duty. They seem to be focusing right now, at least in the more recent statements, on disclosure aspects of this. But I could imagine a situation where duties become more important, specifically the duty of the sponsors of the SPACs to other parties. And it also, it also gets into you know, the issue of what duties do the management of the target company have when the DSPAC M&A transaction comes down the pike. And all of this flows back to this question of what should investors materially really be able to rely on? And if there are conflicts, are they being disclosed? If there are mis or at least dis misalignments of interest, are they being disclosed? Should we be looking at the company's future what we hope it to be from projections or just limiting ourselves in our investment decisions to information based on the company's current, you know, books and cash, cash flow and, and balance sheet. W which one's going to, do you think, become more important, disclosure or duties? I think Ileana's right with respect to these two messages, but, but, I, but I also have, have been practicing long enough to have heard this kind of message many times. And, and I think these are both at their core messages that were being sent to professionals who are involved in the process. Coates was clearly talking to lawyers and saying, you need to be more careful. And if you're not careful, we're gonna come down on you about projections and other things. Um, I think he was also reminding a lot of lawyers who may not be typical securities practitioners that based on some of the filings that they've been seeing, that they were forgetting that these blank check companies don't have a lot of the benefits that other public companies have, and they were making mistakes on filings and things like that. So I think Coates was very much falling back to a typical 
Corp Fin SEC response saying, lawyers, you're part of this gatekeeping process and you need to, to, to sort of make sure that you're being careful. I think the accounting was the same. I think they basically have come back to the, the accounting firms, like Ileana said, and said, guys, you need to go back and relook at everything and make sure the accounting's right because we've identified at least two things that we think are not right. And, and accounting firms are looking are doing exactly that for the same reason. They are viewed by the SEC as gatekeepers for the disclosure and, and um, from the accounting side. And, and they're going back and looking you know, at everything in the transaction, the warrants, the forward purchase agreements, the underlying transactions. They're looking, I mean, they're kind of taking a look again from scratch because that's how they're taking that message. So ultimately, I think it's going to be more on, on the disclosure front. Ileana, I agree, pointed the fact that there may be something else coming down the road because these transactions effectively take the other primary gatekeeper from the SEC's perspective out of play because by design, there are no underwriters beyond the IPO. And, and so I think the staff is very concerned about that because they view underwriters as the premier gatekeeper because they're the ones who really understand the investor's perspective, um, not just the lawyers and accountants who are trying to get the technical stuff right, but the underwriters actually understand the finance behind it and what investors are looking for. And if they're not in the middle of it, from the SEC's perspective, that creates issues. So we could see some duties or some additional rulemaking or something around the role of the underwriters and in particular, the places where they might press on are their roles in connection with the pipes, for example, because they do remain involved. They remain involved as a financial advisor, or sometimes they call themselves capital markets advisors in, in the DSPAC transaction. So, so there's definitely ongoing involvement by broker dealers. So I would expect something else to come down the road. Good. Eliana, let's look at pipes for a second, because obviously they're an important source of liquidity for the DSPAC transaction, the, the, the acquisition or merger that results in the, the target becoming a public company. Say more about that. Sure. So the pipe is exactly as you said. It's it's the means by which the SPAC fills the gap between the purchase price for the acquisition and the money that is sitting in the trust account waiting. From the pipe investor's perspective, they basically agree to be restricted for a couple of weeks in terms of their trading and they receive some information in a marketing deck, including projections. Those projections then, when the transaction is finally announced, are disclosed in an 8K so that everybody can see them and, and the pipe investors are no longer restricted. But from a practical perspective, basically, the pipe is really where you pressure test the deal that's been struck between the SPAC and the acquisition target. The pipe market is relatively efficient. There are a lot of opportunities out there for people to invest. And we've seen actually over the past several weeks and past few months that as pipe investors want to do more diligence and want to ask more questions about these potential investments, the SPAC market sort of the DSPAC market rather sort of slows down. They really have a, a lot of power and a lot of leverage. And we've also seen deals that are recut after there's just not enough interest from the pipe market at a certain valuation. So Rod, let's imagine that I'm the general counsel of a private company and I'm the target of a potential DSPAC transaction. 
right? So this is a way for my company to go public without doing an IPO. It's a way to diversify my capital, perhaps you know, realize some value for my shareholders. What should I be careful about? So what we've noticed is that the pitch to the, the private companies, it's exactly what you just said. And, and sometimes it's, I think it's leveled by folks who are deal professionals trying to get a deal done. And they're saying things exactly like that. You can go public and you can use projections because your company is at a stage where it doesn't have a lot of cash flows and historical performance to, to support an IPO necessarily. In this case, you can use your projections and use that to catapult you onto the, into the public markets. And I think that's an attractive message to a lot of these companies who are in many times sort of working towards an IPO anyways. And this is just sort of, uh, they're, they're, they're enticed by an earlier entrance into that. The general counsel advice I would give is you are going to be public. And, and the mistakes that I think we worry about are trying to cut that path short. And there is a process when you go public to sort of educating management and educating people on what does it mean to be public? Because you've been private all these years and you're able to sort of talk to your employees and your customers and your vendors and your investors pretty freely without any concerns. And now you're going to be public and there's a whole different set of rules. Your accounting has been, you know, private company accounting and the audit standards are, are very different. You know, you don't have to worry about disclosure controls and things like that, that all of a sudden you're going to have to start worrying about as a public company. So by shortening that time period to from private to public, the mistakes I see as potentially being made that GC should be focused on are making sure that you understand and have in place what you need in order to be a public company, not a private company that's just gone public. I'd also add that the decisions that you make along the way in terms of how you market yourselves to potential pipe investors can have ripple effects once the transaction closes. So if you tell your pipe investors, you know, these are our five most important key performance indicators, it's going to be hard to argue later on to the SEC that you shouldn't have to disclose some or all of those metrics on a regular basis to your public company investors. So let's Look at the rest of 2021 and maybe even the year after. Where do you see the SPACs market going given a lot of the uncertainties and the regulatory trends that we've discussed? I see, if you, if you read the last piece of Coates' remarks, I think he was trying to be very neutral and saying, look, we are sort of in a, we're not against SPACs. We're not for SPACs. We, we, we just, you know, it's a phenomenon. If you go back over the last decade or two, the, the SEC staff has been bemoaning the fact that there are fewer and fewer public companies because of private equity and the rise of private equity, taking a lot of public companies into the private space as opposed to public. And SPACs, frankly, reverse that trend and offer a means of, of bringing a bunch of companies into the public sphere. And so that's one of the things the SEC has been wanting to do for a long time. I think also the staff has for a long time been promoting the inclusion of projections because uh, you know countries outside the US when you do an IPO you have to have projections you know in Europe it's a commonplace thing and in the US investors want that information and the only thing that's been preventing it from being included in IPOs is the fact that underwriters don't have a shield against it and the problem with projections is they are going to be wrong. Over a three-year period, they're going to be wrong. Now, they may be wrong to the downside. They may be wrong to the upside. It may be a big miss or, or a home run hit. I mean, you just you just don't know. But the chances that they're going to be exactly on, on point are incredibly remote. 
And, and if they miss the wrong way, then litigation in the United States, it, it just, it ensues. You know, a company's stock price falls off because they miss some projections. And all of a sudden, they're suing the, the underwriters on the IPO and the initial disclosure, all that kind of stuff. Underwriters, they can show that they did their diligence and they can show that they tested the models. But ultimately, the risk is that courts find a, a factual issue as to whether they did enough. To, to, to guard themselves and shield themselves from liability. And if there's a factual issue and they can't get out on summary judgment, then they're looking at a trial. And, and underwriters don't want to go to trial. You don't want to have a big, bold bank versus some investors who've lost all their life savings, right? Which is always what it's going to be. And so unless the SEC sort of comes to grips with a way of shielding better underwriters while still encouraging their their uh, gatekeeping function, right? So some kind of standard like that. I don't think you're going to see those leak in. Right. So I guess without that liability shield, underwriters and issuers in a traditional IPO are limited to using their audited financials and can't really raise public capital on the basis of projections the way they would in a, a DSPAC acquisition when the public shareholders are voting on whether to go forward with uh, with the merger or to redeem their shares. One of the key differences between a SPAC go public process and an IPO is that in a traditional IPO, the company that's IPOing can't really put out projections because they don't have safe harbor from securities litigation under the PSLRA for those statements. So they, so companies that IPO will typically rely on their past financial results in marketing the company and in sort of introducing themselves to the public market. In a SPAC, people have taken the view that projections can be used. And so projections are used to market to the pipe market, which is obviously a private process and not subject to the same securities regulations as an IPO. And then those projections are made public in an 8K with all kinds of disclosure saying, don't rely on these, they're forward-looking, et cetera. And then they're also included in the proxy statement or S4 registration statement in the vein of, these are the considerations that the board took into account when it was considering the transaction. The projections in a SPAC are one of the central features because what else are you going to tell investors, particularly with respect to SPAC targets? Many of them have no revenues. Some of them don't even have a marketable product yet. It really is public-backed venture capital, which is one of the purposes of a SPAC is to collectivize our money and be able to put it towards earlier stage companies and, and desirable acquisition targets. So maybe we'll see the U.S. move in the direction like Europe or other global markets of allowing projections to be used in all IPOs, so long as they're prepared in good faith and on basis of reasonable assumptions. If they did that, I suppose SPACs might become less attractive as an alternative for private companies wishing to go public based on a growth story. You know, and, and future results, which could be different than their past results. I think what was at the core of Coates' statement was not that we don't want projections. It's we actually think projections could be good if they were presented in a careful and supported way. And I think one of the interesting facts that we're going to be monitoring over the next year, two, three, is how accurate were these projections? I mean, do the companies actually hit them pretty well? Are they way off one way or the other? You know, and I and I think that that information over the next year or two in your in your sort of time frame might educate 
this decision, and we may really see the IPO process fundamentally change in the United States around uh, the use of projections and that kind of forward-looking information. Yeah, that, that that's interesting. It also, I think, I, I like the way you, you're emphasizing too that the the SEC is not necessarily coming in pro or con any particular way for companies to go public. What it's saying is lawyers, accountants, people preparing the financial projections, basically the intermediaries, the underwriters, the people who are involved in as gatekeepers in dealing with this asymmetric in, information, this imbalance between what companies or company management knows and what investors know, do a good job. Be careful. Be accurate. Be thorough. Be honest. I mean, those are all, I think, kind of inherent in that in that message. What I'd add is that I think you are seeing already those gatekeepers, the lawyers and accountants, starting to take a careful look at the transactions that we're involved in and really make sure that our clients are partnering with us very closely so that they don't get themselves into hot water in a way that we can't help them out of it. So we are always on the lookout for conflicts of interest and matters of process where as lawyers, we can really add value and help shield the company, the SPAC, the directors from liability by making sure that conflicts are clearly disclosed, that everyone's kind of rowing in the same direction, and that nothing improper is happening along the way. In terms of SPAC activity, I think de-SPAC transactions are morphing to look more like regular way M&A transactions. So there's more focus on process. There's more sort of thoughtful consideration of what that transaction looks like. And there are also more shareholder strike suits. There are more plaintiff's firms alleging breaches of fiduciary duties and failures of disclosure in the proxy statement or registration statement. You're certainly seeing much more of that than you were a year ago. And I think that trend is going to continue. Yeah, that makes sense. Of course, because SPACs are really a way of combining what is fundamentally an IPO process with what is fundamentally an M&A process and driving kind of both markets at once. That's right. Yep. Well, thank you both very much for taking the time today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thanks, Ken. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Law, Policy, and Markets, Millbank Conversations. Follow us on your favorite podcast platform and learn more at millbank.com.